We're back from the O'Haley Show. My guest today, again, is Steve Wright, author of Aggressively Human, former Raider, Cowboy, Survivor contestant. Steve, thanks for stopping by. And what we're going to do a series of interviews in the next couple weeks and who knows how long, different people that you have crossed paths with. And one that I think that is somebody that just literally opened the world up to the mindset was Bo Jackson. And, I, and I'm, yeah. I'm wearing today a T-shirt that's almost gray to you know commemorate the silver and black. Even though I, I want my one years of loving the Raiders was back in the days of Lester Hayes and that team that beat the Eagles. Somehow we all could love that that underdog Raider team, and that's really I think of the Raiders and Al Davis, but. Again, I was a huge fan of Bo Jackson and when he went to the Raiders. So, uh, Steve, thanks for stopping by. And you see I'm reminiscing about specifically that time period. It, it gets excitable talking about Bo. Everything he did was exciting and, and drew eyes and attention. And, yeah, I, I got stories about that. All right, so let's go with that. If Bo Jackson – okay, let's go to the questions. Oh, yeah. What was your first impression of Bo Jackson when you started playing together? That's a great question. Um, it was the sixth game of the year. I believe it was like the sixth game of the year. We were, I don't know what our record was at that time, but we're all out there practicing. We knew Bo was coming in. He had signed. Is Bo signing? He signed today. Oh, he's going to be here today. So we're all kind of looking, and I don't think any of us had ever met him before. And all of us have a little bit of an ego. You know, you're out there playing NFL football and you're big and bad and a great athlete and strong and tough and everything else. And then Bo give, comes strutting onto the field and we were all just, just the way he moved like a cat and strong and then got a couple of handoffs and we all marveled at, at his explosiveness. Um, how he got through the holes so quick. We realized, you know, as offensive linemen that our job is going to be a little bit easier. We don't have to hold the blocks as long. Um, yeah, he was just, uh, he, he shocked everybody. He humbled everybody on the field from Howie and, um, you know, our great wide receivers. All of a sudden, this guy was the stud of studs. No, no doubt. I mean, absolutely. Can you share a memorable moment you had on the field with Bo? Hmm. Um, it always, um, not really in the field, uh, laughing and chatting a whole lot. Um, it was more or less, you know, just picking him up, you know, many, many times he's on the ground and we're pretty close by and just throwing an arm down to him and him just latching on and hoisting him up and, you know, give you a little pat for, you know, thanks and, um, love doing that. So just all the all the backs, but uh, a bow as well. So that was, it was just a it was a nice connection that you know I got your brother. Um, yeah, right. He was yeah. just he was a special to to to, to treat to treat well. He, if we treated him well, he was going to treat us well. So the highlights, like when you're blocking for him, like you talked about how you block for Tony Dorsett. Let's talk about blocking for Bo Jackson and watching his, his genius work together it's got to be amazing yeah it's 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 uh it's it's different than genius neil it's explosion it's uh rocket taking off so 
you, anytime you see any of his long runs, you see me 66 pulling down the line. Maybe Bo's running around the left side. I was right tackle. So I'm pulling and I'm supposed to be getting down the line and turning up around the left tackle to get a linebacker. And by the time I'm just getting over to the tackle, Bo is already 10 yards down the field. So now it turns into I'm just chasing him looking for fumbles. I, you know, I haven't hit anybody. Um, it, it was just shocking to, and that's the word I keep using, just to to see him pull away or put his head down and run people over was was uh, a sight to behold. And again, made our job so much easier. And when you think about the controversy, right, of playing two sports, just being in the minor leagues in baseball, right, maybe getting a little going up to the majors and then coming to the Raiders, that had to be surprising because a lot of you guys probably thought there's no way if he misses training camp, all these games, he's not going to figure out the playbook in time. And he's really not going to have a great career with the Ra with the Raiders. And he just showed those unbelievable that you, shock because you see the, the commercials and everything, and you just didn't expect him to do what he did. Right. Yeah. It, um, <clears throat> we knew that we didn't care if he practiced um, all he wanted to do, and I talk about it in my book, all he wanted to do was run with the ball, not in practice. Um, they didn't want to block on passing in, in games the way Marcus does. Just give him the ball. He had his he had his place on the team and, you know, extremely excelled at it. So the coaches were cool with it. Uh, I got a funny story in there where he told one of the coaches to F off. Um and the coach just laughed and rolled with it because it was uh, Bo joked around a lot with everybody. Um, he was a, he was a quiet guy, but he loved you know poking fun at, for you for any reason. Um, so um, special cat. Tully, what do you think of him off the field uh, for team leading leadership? How was Bo there? Bo just disappeared as I did. Um, Bo would get, we get through with practice and some guys would hang out other like myself. I would, I had other friends. And so I just go down to South Bay and where I lived down in Hermosa beach and Bo just, uh, went off with, I think he was married at the time. Um, I think he had a child too. And so he was really low key, low key in the locker room, unless he was poking fun or, um, very, very quiet, just would much rather do a one-on-one, -on -one, just sit there on, a, on our stools and talk about hunting or sports were his kind of thing. Um, you know, he's not out going out for cocktails after practice or, you know, going out to any clubs. Just a family man, super quiet. I always thought his nickname would be country. I, I played with a guy on one of my other teams and the Colts. And yeah, we just called him country, and he was just country. He just no flash, just quiet, slide in, do his do his thing, and get out. You know, when I think about Bo Jackson in that way, the commercials, Bo knows he's almost like a Michael Jordan at that time period. When you were like in team meetings where fans could come around, or like in the hotel and all that stuff, what was the atmosphere when Bo was was being surrounded when fans spotted him and stuff like that? It was it was the Beatles in the middle of us, you know. Everybody screaming and wanting to get the a pen to him and, and an autograph. And I love Bo. Um, Bo was amazing, but he was really rough in the autograph territory. 
um, that bummed me out. Um, you know, because I, I I pick up all his leftovers and say, "Kid, you want you know you you want to take an offensive tackles? Sure, I'll I'll take yours." And he would just you know kind of blow through them a little fast, <clears throat> brush people off. Um, definitely wanted someone there helping him just to keep people away from him, and he just liked to be quiet, do his thing, run, and uh, get home to his get home to his family. He just didn't like the limelight, didn't like it in front of a microphone. Right. Um, just uh, real, real pretty private, except for to all of us in the the locker room. The locker room was a haven for him and, you know, all mm-hmm. of us to get, get away from the cameras and the people. And the, so it was it was nice kind of sitting there and just chilling, sitting at, right. his, at his seat where we all are and just, uh, you know, shooting the bull. If I would interview Bo Jackson, I'm going to give you an example, and I hope Ralph Sampson doesn't get upset with me. Ralph is a very humble guy, and Ralph doesn't like, and he's really hard on himself, Ralph Sampson. And, you know, and he has all these accomplishments, yet he has a chip in his shoulder that he really doesn't want to talk about all his accolades. He's about the next big thing in business, Ralph. When I had him on the show, I interviewed Ralph a year ago, and not a really a great media guy. Bo was the same. Do you think Bo was really hot, hard on himself about accolades and was really humble when you talked about all of his experiences? And that's probably why he didn't really want to be in front of the media or fans as much because he just did his job and did worked hard, but really didn't want to think of himself as that thing compared to like someone like Deion Sanders. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, you may have something there, Neil. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I just know that he was he was quiet and shy. Um, hard to imagine coming out of a beast like that that just running people over and all his other abilities but you know i think kind of plain and simple he was a little shy and reserved and um didn't like the cameras in his face i think more than anything um i'm not i don't think he was comparing himself to anybody else um just wanted to kind of talk with the guys or nobody and go home and so definitely not a media guy at all right bo no, 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 not at all. Um, I don't know of anything he's really ever done, um, you know, at, at an ex- extensive, you know, series or documentary even. I don't even know if he's got a documentary on him or not. I don't know. But yeah, I've interviewed some yeah. people that have never been interviewed ever. It's crazy when you end up getting these opportunities and who knows when I'll get the chance to interview Bo Jackson or be at a golf tournament with him or different things like that. Yeah. Because that's probably the only time you get that three minutes or something he's he's the marshawn lynch before marshawn lynch in so many aspects yeah. right yeah, like marshawn loves oh doesn't he oh but that was a gimmick yeah. he, he utilized it right because he saw the power of social media right the power of things that people that really didn't want to get in front of the camera but now can say 15 seconds compared to the other thing now i don't know why i mentioned Dion sanders did you have any other experiences ever running into Dion? just because of how crazy the movement is i did I did not. Um, didn't uh, think I was kind of in my you know my career, and so I was just watching the other teams that we were playing and the positions. And no, I really didn't pay, pay a whole lot of attention to Dan, but he was loud and proud, and uh, he could bring it and back it up. And so did Bo, but Bo, Bo, okay. Bo didn't talk. About it. Bo, didn't, did you, Bo didn't talk about. It. Did you learn anything from Bo, Bo Jackson about football that you took every day, like something that he? through leadership in the relationship you had in the huddle with him 
like to say, I'd like to say yes, but I'd like to say yes, but no. I'd played a long time, um, and this was going to be his first year, um, you know, in the NFL. Um, so not that I knew everything, but, um, he was, he was feeling his way and his, his path was very narrow. So it was, you know, the only thing I could run, you know, learn from him is how to run faster. Um, it just, his, his, his job was about as simple as it gets, show up when you want to for practice and take the ball when we hand it to you and run as fast as you can. Now, thinking about humility I think that that comparison of you and Bo is very same, similar. In a way, you're a very humble person for your career. 11 years in the NFL, you were a starter. Not many people could say they were a starter. And you were part of some pretty exciting teams. So what do you think your humility comes from? Because Bo definitely has that humility. What do you think? Um, it's funny. I was talking about this in a podcast the other day. I, I believe it comes from staying in the present um i think i i I think if i was all about myself and wanted to beat my chest well if i was going to beat my chest it's about you know blocking for tony dorsett or blocking for Bo. and so i don't really i'm not talking about it i'm I'm not in that I'm, i'm dealing with whatever i'm dealing with today this is kind of a a different different answer to your question but I think uh, being humble is just staying in the present and not thinking about that. It was, it was an amazing experience and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I've had a lot of amazing experiences. That's why I wanted to write my um, uh, aggressively human memoir. Um, But humbling is, uh, I also too, I learned from other people and that that would be what I consider a bad mentor, somebody that's, that's braggadocious um and it just it just kind of turns you off listening to it um i'm who could talk about it all day all my experiences with my business or you know do things with things we did with with global giving or just all my football experiences my fights with you know different players and lawrence taylor if i'm asked but i'm just uh um not not gonna lead with that i'm gonna lead with whatever's going right now with you and i that's great. And you know, what I think about specifically enough is you're seeing this experience now with your book and now signing autographs and having autographed pictures. That's got to be pretty cool, right? To go back to that a little bit, but in a different way and be able to really have those conversations that maybe 20 years ago you couldn't have with fans. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <clears throat> it, it is. I'm really enjoying this, this whole process, this whole journey um, going up to Las Vegas this weekend, you know, I'm, I'm they're having I'm having two uh, book signings it was like you know it's kind of getting back to the old days of when I was playing it's uh you know my little marquees or something and you know hearing it on the radio that Steve Wright's going to be on, I'm going to be on Fox Radio Raider Radio in Las Vegas Sunday morning um yeah, it's it, it's a trip. It's fun. I'm staying super active on uh, social media, trying to respond to everybody. But you know, everybody wants a a little piece, and I got yeah. It's just uh, it's 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 it it is exciting, and so I'm just gonna keep writing this and giving back as hard and as fast as I can because it comes back to me. And if I just reach out and social with everybody, I'm I'm coming from my heart, and I want to you know connect. And thank right. you for connecting. All right. Writeauthor.com right now to purchase the book or Amazon. 
and continued success with the book and the stories. And I'm going to look at Al Davis next week because I got to talk about Al. Uh, just a huge uh, story. And we'll just continue with these stories. And I appreciate Steve for stopping. Thank you. All right. You're listening, watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is David Hollenbach of Hollenbach Leadership. David, how are you? You know, and I think this is where I really want to kind of hit your brain because you had to supervise how many people when you were in the fire department? How many people were responsible for? Well, when I was managing uh, six fire stations, when I was responsible for six fire stations, the personnel that staffed those six fire stations total was about 90 uh, firefighters. Uh, engineers and lieutenants, and one captain. Um, prior to taking over that battalion, I was the chief of special operations, and that was the personnel that, uh, for the department size, it, it was 200-something, 200-something personnel. Wow. Okay, Um. so and how do you see that these big organizations, especially with you as the head leader, how you can really work with a lot of those team leaders to keep each one of them growing so everyone is reaching their high potential as a leader. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was just reading uh, some research on um, team performance, team effectiveness, uh, you know, team cohesion, all that stuff. And yeah, you know, there's a a model that most human resources departments, um, most human resource managers, they uh, tend to evaluate somebody on their knowledge, skills, and abilities, and they fit them for the position, right? And that position is a person on a team and they don't really evaluate how that that position fits into the the team right so cuz everybody on that team has a role to play and you know yes you need that you've got to hire people that have the knowledge skills and abilities but you also, and, and this is what's interesting, is that uh, I believe that the industry of industrial and organizational psychology, the the people that really evaluate teams and organizations, that kind of thing, um, I believe that the direction that the research is pointing uh, everybody is towards evaluating how a person actually fits on that team you know their personality what drives them what motivates them and then once you have created this highly functioning team what normally happens when people are successful they promote and they move into a different position <laughs> which dismantles the team and then what do you do from there? Right. You've got to, you've got to know how 
that person affected the team and really who are you going to bring in to replace that person? You've got to have somebody with the same knowledge, skills, and abilities or develop it on that team and slide that person in there and just keep sliding people over into those positions. Um, yeah, it's to me, it's really, really interesting uh, you know, to see all the different aspects of how teams operate and the different variables that can that can change the formula on you. You know, and so I'm I'm thinking when you talk about this, as people talk about, and this is what you're going to be doing a lot of once you get your PhD and teach lots of people this, uh, David, is the biggest problem is that people are talking about entrepreneurship, right? And what kind of business should you have? I was listening to Neil Patel and Eric Sue's marketing school podcast. And they talked about founders having to come back after they appointed a CEO and it didn't work out. And they had, they, as the founding founder, they're coming back because their business was losing money and they needed to come back to bring that energy back to the organization. So from the top down, it is such a challenge. Like some people say, well, just be a solopreneur or maybe just, you know, be the only one doing it, be the bread maker. And that's it. Because once you build your organization to a certain level, it's going to become so stressful for you because you're going to be involved in so many different things. It's not going to be fun anymore. What do you say to people like that? I know we're talking the fire department, but you can relate this to so many other organizations. I, I think if you start to develop a vision after the fact, you're going to run into issues like that. If you know where you want to go, where you want to be down the road, what are all the pieces that you need to have in place in order to accomplish that? And so, and, and the biggest asset of any organization is the people. Yes. And so you've got to hire well, and then you've got to develop them and get to know those people, especially the person that you're going to put into your shoes to run things. You've got to know them really, really well, understand what motivates them. And then when they take over, make sure that they have enough incentive to keep that energy level high and keep on going and do things the way that you've the found. Yeah. Because so that means the thing I've seen is in my conversations, and I can't believe we share this. And then a lot of times we take your reels too, but we catch back up and put it up and people do check it on YouTube or listen to the show and say, what the hell are you talking about? Neil, you tell us specific things and your stories in these interviews, but really people are motivated to work for me. Now, how do I make sure they're trained well? And then make sure I put somebody underneath them because I can't continue to work with them constantly if I'm opening other businesses or doing other ventures or speaking or getting back in the ring. How can I do all those things and still be an entrepreneur? So that's where the process begins. Who is going to be that next higher up who's going to manage that part of the team, be able to understand your mission and vision and be motivated enough to go and do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, It there there has to be... I mean, it it has to be incentivized, you know, for that individual. It's not it's not their 
company. You know what I mean? And they really That's why I'm trying to make everyone get a piece of the company by opening up offices, being an operator, looking at specific areas like that so they're incentivized that you're with my company for the long run. Not just working as a subcontractor. You're going to be a business owner yourself. You're going to learn entrepreneurship. I'm going to make you great. One of the uh, law of attraction things with Garage Global, if you go to Clubhouse, definitely listen to the secret of law of attraction with Garage Global. He has lots of good meditations that you do self-hypnosis with. And what you'll learn in the process is one of them, I think it was the magic of believing. He said, the guy who the author said, it's so important so you don't pay them so much, but you want to give them the incentive that they can become rich. It was about a book about becoming rich. So you want to teach your people to become rich. This totally sounds different than the hierarchy of a fire station, but you're going to learn about these hierarchies, David, when you have the opportunity to study this more, especially other organizations and how they the, how that leadership's developed. Well, it's it's not so different in the fire service. You've got to have people that are motivated, that own the mission. And, and it's what drives somebody to put on their gear and risk their life going into a hazardous environment. You know, it's not the money. I can guarantee you that, you know, it's they own the mission it's it's innate like they they have that drive and it is developed they have to feel like they know what to do when everything hits the fan right if they feel comfortable under pressure and making decisions that's the other thing do they feel comfortable making decisions without asking permission you know and, and there is a, a level where you have to say, up to this point, it's yours. Right. At this point, this is where you need to bring me in. And, and that's how it is in the fire service. When, uh, when an incident gets too complicated or too big, you bring in somebody that has a lot more experience. They have more rank. They have more influence. They can get on the radio and bring in tons of resources to accomplish the mission that much faster. So that's that's where I I, I say there's a lot of crossover. I got it. And that's where it's gonna be interesting what you learn that stuff. You can go to hollandbackleadership.com right now to find out more information on you, David. And it's really interesting. The next phase in your development with this leadership to become who work in this, this field has got to be exciting for you, isn't it, David? Yeah, absolutely. And it's great information. Yeah. But I'm just telling you, I think the mistake people make is just because if you grow an organization large as an entrepreneur, you shouldn't think it's a problem because you want to continue to grow because if you don't grow, you will die at one point in time. And especially with AI, you better not slow down. You better put the put the gas pedal on as fast as you can because people think ah, I can handle it. I'll be good. Not with AI. There's going to be a thousand people coming after you right there and there. And those people are AI bots as well. So appreciate it, David. Amen. Thank you. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest today is Tracy Poisoner. And we're going to talk. Uh, she's from Bach Flowers Alchemy. 
Undeletable Dad, uh, Essential Moms, Stepmoms, <laughs> multiple brands, but it all goes under Tracy Poisoner. And soon we're going to find out about TracyPoisoner.com where you can find out all the information of all of her different projects and what she's doing. But ultimately it comes down to you and mindset. And mindset is what sets your day every day, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you can walk through your life kind of blindly, but uh, when you want to be in control of your of your life story and your destiny and your success, uh, you need the mindset for that. Uh, mindset, you know, it's a word that we've coined to describe your uh, your mental attitude towards things. I think it's um, more and more people are focusing on that because it's it's a way of describing your your conscious intention of what you want to achieve or produce or who you want to be. Totally. All right. So our topic today is instinct versus intuition. Wow. I, I mean, it, and, and I've just learned intuition and that is a higher power intuition, but uh, instinct versus intuition, that's a, that's an interesting one because I don't really know the difference because they can almost be defined the same thing. Right. So they're not the same at all. And if you think about how we use those words, um, you would say like my instincts kicked in and I did this, or I do that by instinct, right? It's kind of your default and it comes from your conditioning, from how you've been raised, from what you've learned, from what you've absorbed from, you know, media and other people all your life. It comes from evolutionary heritage, right? All of our like DNA that we've epigenetically learned things over the over the eons from our ancestors that are part of our instinct. You have a maternal instinct or you have a fight or flight instinct. These are things that we're we're hardwired for as human beings. And intuition is where you are pulling advice from I'm going to say your higher self. So intuition would be not this kind of lower um, coded information that's that's like in your storehouse, in your library of options, right? Like like a reflex that happens almost automatically because you're wired that way. Intuition is where you you get a hit of an idea to do something differently. And it's usually outside of your comfort zone. Usually speaking, intuition is going to lead you outside of your comfort zone. It's going to feel uncomfortable. So something that you do by instinct is going to be to keep you safe. Because all of that epigenetic programming that I was talking about, your, your hereditary evolutionary programming is around keeping you safe. It's around survival stuff. Instinct tends to be around growing about stretching, about reaching, about expanding, you know, about developing yourself. And that's like my whole world. That's the part that I love, right? So, um, I mean, I've been I've been a healer, so to speak, all my life. Um, you know, I've been 25 years a homeopathic practitioner. So in essence, I'm somebody who is about helping people to heal. And in the last few years, I've been much more interested in moving towards evolution, development, 
right? So that's a much more activational model than a healing model. And uh, I love to help people understand how to recognize the difference between an impulse that comes from an instinct when you think this is the right thing to do, then an intuitive hit that's like, that's that's the right move. I have to do that. So intuition is generally leading you towards an, your edge, towards your growth edge. And it's inevitably going to involve something that feels a little bit risky or uncomfortable, whereas instinct is generally pulling you back from the ledge into a safe place. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally does. Because instinct goes back to your previous life. Intuition is something that is higher. Right. It's something calling you forward from your next, you know, from the next version of you. While instinct is based on all of your poor trials or good things that have worked out, you're just going to go that route because it, it was what worked before. Yeah. And it will, it's not that instinct is a bad thing. Like we do need it. Right. And you can have people have a business instinct, right. That you can say it's my business instinct. Like I can smell where a good deal is, or I know the right move to make. And it instinct can make people successful. It's not that it's a bad thing, but, um, but where there's intuition involved, there is going to be some kind of, um, a move that tastes a little riskier than what your what your instinct would lead you. So the idea is that your your instinct, if we're talking about business instinct, will lead you to a predictable rate of growth. Whereas if you can get in touch with your intuition about something, now we could be talking about exponential growth. That doesn't make any sense. So that we have to be able to access this next level thinking in order to be able to quantum leap in all fields of life, in your personal life, in relationships, in business, uh, whatever it's about. If you want to be making the quantum leaps, you have to familiarize yourself with intuition and with what comes after intuition, which is genius, because there's another level still to explore. All right. Well, that's such interesting information, you know, that we're gathering between instinct and intuition. So they're both good. But you should be more open to intuition, it sounds like, what you're saying. Well, you should be open to it if that's what you want, if growth is what you want. If you want to develop yourself in ways that go beyond what you think is possible for you now. Because we talked about this last time, right? Everybody has their own glass ceiling, right? We all we talked about upper limiting. We all have our own sort of energetic glass ceiling of what we think is possible for us and where we feel comfortable in terms of how much we want to grow. And if you want to take advantage of this moment in history where everything is about quantum growth and, you know, we were just talking about AI a moment before, right? Like these unimaginable levels of of artificial intelligence that are available to us now. If you want to jump on this bandwagon of unlimited growth into the world of what's unimaginable, you have to start connecting on another level with your intuition and with your genius. All right. The best place to find information on you is to search Tracy Poisoner on Google and to go to all the different social media, undeletabledad.com, but soon tracypoisoner.com if you've been listening to this podcast later. Appreciate it, Tracy. Great information and uh, appreciate you stopping by. Thank you.
All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome to the program first, my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Holloman series and uh, CEO of many, many companies. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. We, we are. I am crazy. <clears throat> I am crazy about pirates. And we have the, the major pirate captain right here with us today, um, Robert P. Wills. And he has a brand new book out today. He's going to tell us about it. I do. It's a fun, uh, a fairly historically accurate um, <clears throat> a pirate story that I have. There's no, uh, there's no magic spells. There's no curses, mythical monsters in it. Um, the places they go are actual places that, that existed in the 1780s. Um, the other ships are they're interacting with are actually the names of other ships that are around. So um, the only thing that really isn't true in the story is where I have the Spanish treasure sitting in Hispaniola. That that's the only part that didn't happen. But I mean, they did have treasure in other places, but that's where I have them going to uh, steal it. The the treasure of King Charles III, the, the Spanish king at the time. You know, that's interesting, Robert, when you talk about that, because history is big about your books. You like to really go back into history, don't you? I do. Um, I try to make it uh, I try to make it as accurate as I can on, on all my books, because I'd hate to have, you know, someone reading and go, well, that's not even close to, to, to write and have them lose interest in the story. So I try to make sure that if I uh, if I make a quote, even in my fantasy stories, if I quote some poet from uh, medieval times, it's actually a poet that exists. I don't just make up. I, I make up names, but I try to keep at least some some facts in there for uh, for for my readers. So I think it's important to take the time to 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 do the research for the readers. Yeah, and how important that research is such an important thing it's for the accuracy of things, and then putting together your creativity to make it different than other pirate bo books, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually uh, kind of tough because I put my pirates in a corvette, um, which is a type of ship, three masted ship. So then I have to figure out, you know, how deep water they can go into it compared to other ships, because you can't just have them running close to shore. You know, they can't get within 20, 30 feet of shore when they take, you know, 30 feet of water, 20 feet of water. So, yeah, a lot of that came into the two. What ships are faster than what ships um, and trying to figure out, you know, when I did my naval battles, you know, and have and have the ships interacting with each other as they're sailing that that. Yeah, there was a lot of research involved in uh, <laughs> how old uh, two and three masted wooden ships sailed with the wind and against the wind and how close to shore they could get and that sort of thing. So it was quite a, yeah, there was quite a bit of research involved in that. Were the pirate, are pirates pretty ornery people? Like they said, like pretty vicious people from your research. Like were, You know, the, the, one of the interesting thing I, I learned when I was, when I was reading out, uh, reading up on them is, you know, a lot of times the pirates weren't really after treasure. Most of the time they were after just uh, foods and goods and water and such, because that that's what they just need to, to survive. So um, boarding another ship didn't mean they were there to take treasure. It might have been there to take all their food supplies and their water because, I mean, you can't, as a pirate ship, you can't just pull into some, you know, French or English port and say, hey, we like to buy a bunch of stuff. So they ended up stealing that. So a lot of it was stealing cargo that wasn't really treasure, but it was necessary for, for life on, on a ship. That's the key thing. It was necessary for, for life. If they didn't, they don't survive. So it was almost like the Middle Ages with pirates then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you know they they end up losing an anchor, and that's kind of a big deal. So then that's one of the issues they're dealing with, and they end up uh, actually making it to a friendly port and buying another anchor because you really need anchors on the ship. You can't you can't make do without anchors. Sails wear out. You know they need to replace their sails every so often. So yeah, they they uh, 
and I and I and the book's an adventure story. It's a it's not a you know a dry like a hard science fiction that's all science on sailing and stuff. There's a lot of adventure going on, but in the background that you don't really see. Um, I've done the research, so when they say something, it's actually you know they are looking for they are looking for a sail because they need a new sail or they you know they need an anchor that sort of thing. Can you talk me talk, tell me more about you know um, specifically enough the uh, the the story? Tell us the premise of the story without giving it away. Well, the uh, the story is uh, centers around uh, Captain Non and uh, his uh, his mother was captured by a British uh, sailor off the course course coast of Persia. And after he was born, um, they gave him a Christian name, and the mother just called him his little Nan because he was he was dark skinned because he was Persian, the color of, of bread, Nan. So she called him her little piece of bread, and that's where he picked up that name. Um, he ended up leaving, uh, killing killing the 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 Englishman and leaving and finding his fortune at sea. So he really doesn't like English people. He goes out of his way to sink English ships when he can. Um, and he finds out by chance about this uh, Spanish treasure. So he's kind of in a race to get there before the British privateers get there and steal it and bring it back to Britain. And Spain moves it uh, back to back to Spain across the uh, across the, the Atlantic. So um, he's dealing with the English ships that he's attacked and they're chasing him across the Mediterranean as they're moving, or the, the Caribbean as they're moving across um, while he's trying to get away from them to get to the treasure. But then he has to deal with the Spaniards once he gets to shore. So it's kind of he's dealing with two two countries that aren't pleased with him at all. Oh wow! It sounds like it. They're not definitely not pleased and happy with it. And uh, basically, uh, have have anyone previewed the book yet, or are they all waiting for today's launch to read it? Have I'm you sorry? Had, have anyone previewed the book? Have you sent it out? Um, to I've had a well, I've had a couple. I've had a bunch of sales. I haven't had any reviews actually pop in, and I haven't had anyone email me about it yet. Um, the hardback actually went live a couple of days ago, um, but the ebook went live uh, today, and I have six sales on that for for uh, for those. So I'll have to wait and see what the the folks who bought it uh, think of it. I haven't heard anything from anyone yet. I guess it's too well, early still. Well, that's why we're having a special, and I want to announce this as I'm moving my tie and thinking we have a special <laughs> book launch November 29th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll have the Zoom link, but you're going to have to go register first. But you're going to register to win an autographed picture of Robert with his with his pirate hat on, and and and, 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 and a copy of the book. I will mail you a copy. Yeah, mail you the copy of the book. We'll have a couple door prizes and pirate trivia. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I know you're excited, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. All right. Well, thanks, Robert. Best place to go again is Amazon to purchase the book. And the book's name is again? The book is called 18 Fathoms, which is the length of the ship. That's why he calls it that. It's, it's 18 fathoms long. That's where the name comes from. So six feet and a fathoms, that's the length of the ship. Okay. Thanks again, Robert. We appreciate it, sir. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast. I'm so, so excited of Western Author Spotlight Podcast and the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome the host of the Western Author Spotlight Podcast, Frank Fiore. Frank, what is our saying we always say before we start this podcast? What's the tagline? Saddle up. All right, it's time to saddle up with Frank Fiore. Frank, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest today. 
Yes, I've, I've known Nick for gosh many years, and uh, he is quite a, quite an individual. He's very quite uh, entrepreneurial, and we're going to talk to him about uh, his company, and in particular, but also westerns. And uh, if anyone should know anything about what's going on in the western genre, it's going to be Nick. Nick, we appreciate you stopping by. Oh, it's my pleasure, Neil. I'm always happy to take a take a time to come on these shows and meet. And of course, I'm very fond of Frank. Frank and I, as he says, have worked for years, and it's always been a joyous relationship. And you know, he calls me entrepreneurial, but he's more entrepreneurial than I am. I always <laughs> borrowed ideas from him. Well, then I we did we only know uh, Frank in a certain way, Nick. You'll have to tell us those stories some other time. But good, Frank. Your first question for Nick. Well, first of all, just a little background. Uh, I, I don't remember how we got put together. Do you remember that? I do. I do. A guy called Cliff Popke, who was an author, called me up and he says, I've met this great author called Frank Fiore, who needs help with publicity. I was working in publicity about then. And I said, well, boy, you know, introduce us. So he introduced us and you and I had a call, Frank, and uh, so we ended up working together. I think we just hit it off from the beginning. Do you remember that? Right, you were you were going to be marketing. You were marketing some of my uh, fiction books at the time. That's and, all right. Uh, <clears throat> I was getting a little bit frustrated trying to hit, reach the market, and I, then I said, "You know, Nick, is there any genre like romance novels where the readers just gobble up anything because it's a romance novel? Is there any kind of <clears throat> genre like that?" And he goes, "Yeah." He goes, Westerns. So I said, Westerns? He goes, yeah, you put a horse on the cover of a stagecoach and gunfighter or something. And these these um, readers, they just gobble it up. You know, they, they buy the book. So I said, uh, <clears throat> well, I'm from Brooklyn. What do I know about Westerns? And he said, you're a writer, aren't you? Yeah, well, right. And so he sends me a, a uh, an outline of a book. And I said, hey, write it. So I write the book. It turns out that that, that is the gunfight at, Brock, at Black Ridge. And uh, we write that, and he, he markets it, and promotes it, and becomes a bestseller in, in England. <laughs> it's, it's wow. It too, very quickly, too. It took off very quickly. I That's yeah, fantastic, Nick. Because you're a fresh name with a fresh idea on the market. The Western readers gravitated to it. Yeah, right. No, right. no doubt. So, Nick, what made you understand that Westerns are really going to be popular? Do you think it's, it's happened? Why in, I guess, across the pond is it so popular even though in the u.s we really had a big push because of certain shows on tv and stuff lately well actually the majority of our sales have come from the united states australia canada england still uh although it's a growing segment and it's a segment we're looking to grow even further through television advertising etc etc because there's a lot of uh western television still in england uh america's still the world leader when it comes to westerns and and still a huge part of the market um the only the, the, the way i got into westerns was i was i was hired by a western author and he said to me i know you've had very a lot of success with thrillers and such he says uh, can you work on my western i said no 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 no. westerns don't sell i said I, i'm not working on westerns i said that's crazy i'm working on thrillers i've got a backlog of authors i don't need to work on a western he says look if i hire you and you work on it he says uh, i lose my money i lose my money i'm retired i don't care uh, I already made my money. I want you to work on my Western. So I worked on the Western. The thing went to number one, and it was it was it was a huge seller. And that's when we figured out that the Western market was so big. Well, he came back to me and he says, uh, "I got a bunch of friends who are Western authors, and they're making sense every month. Would you would you like to work with them?" So all of a sudden, I was the guy in the Western business, I suppose. And there's only a few Western publishers, and none of them were particularly powerful in our business. 
So the authors came to me one day and they said, look, you know, we want to be legitimate. We want to have a publishing company. Would you run the company? We'll we'll sign to the company. We want you to run it. And I uh, assumed the role I assumed. Uh, it was purely by fluke, though, that I got into it. But And, and finding that Western soul, it was all completely by fluke. Well, yeah, that's what happened to me, <clears throat> probably by fluke. I mean, meeting you, I would have never thought of writing Westerns. <laughs> but you developed the market. Quite well. I mean, now, how many authors do you have under under uh, uh, Dusty Saddle at this point? Dusty Saddle has about 230 authors on the contract. Um, yes, we developed it really well. We added rules to the business. We added uh, rules and standards. So we came up with a formula that sold. We put our authors to work to the formula, which meant that we were turning out success after success. Um, we had a cover standard. Uh, we came up, we were the first Western publisher to have in-house editors, to have in-house cover design, to have individual art for each book. Um, we came up, we, we basically standardized the business in a lot of ways, and we took it from being a niche market to the point now where we're looking at movies and even theater uh, productions with with the Western theme. So we really had, but we had a great blank canvas to work from. The Western had been neglected from the 1980s. Um, a lot of the Western authors weren't the big ones from that time were still around, but weren't on the contract yet. They could still write good stories, had huge back catalogs of stories. <clears throat> we managed to retool a lot of science fiction authors and um, thriller authors who weren't finding success to, to put them into the Western business. They found it very easy to follow our formula. So we managed to turn out a lot of books and, and put a lot of good product in front of readers very quickly and used a lot of our um, in-house marketing to, to to really pull the, the, the business together. Um, the Western business, the readers were still there. It's just nobody was servicing those readers. And that's really uh, that was the key to our business. What do you, wow. what do you, what is the hottest uh, idea or concept in Westerns today? Well, in my business, it's always said that whatever I choose it to be, but that's not, the tr <laughs> not that's not the case at all. The actual truth of the matter is that mounted men and frontier stories sell really well for us, man against the elements. And that's determined by the readership. The readership, I think, um, has turned away from a lot of the the modern world in the sense of all of the noise and the bluster and the news. And they really do want to be at one with themselves. So they read the books that that, that, that allow them that release. Uh, mountain men are still accounting for, what, 30, 35% of our business two years later, two years after the initial boom. Wow. And and I think, Nick, what is happening is that, that I'm telling you because of the shows that really got popular in westerns of new the new genre and movies and television that's really helped boom in the u.s to make it a very popular even though years before the old stuff still sold and there was still a group of niche market people that want to read it but now it's becoming more and more mainstream would you agree nick more and more people want to learn about westerns and about westerns compared to just a niche market well, I remember sitting in a marketing meeting with a series with a with a publicity team, and they said to me, "You'll never reach the youth market." And in my business, they're obsessed with the youth market, the youth market, the youth market. That's all I ever hear. It's all I ever comes over used to come over my desk all the time is the youth market. You need to do comic westerns. You need to do graphic novel westerns. You need to do uh, more sexualized westerns, and you'll get the youth market. And I said, "Well, you know what." uh we're not into that 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 upsets our a base uh we're not going to do that and what we found was exactly as you said 
through television shows and and certain movies that came out bass reeves of course is the big one at the moment uh we did start to pick up a youth audience automatically a youth and younger audience automatically without going to the extremes that a lot of the big marketing companies were telling us we had to do and I think that what goes around comes around. Westerns have a high value. People are interested in history. A few years ago, it was Mad Men that was the big thing. Everybody wanted to work in a 1960s office environment. Um, and now, of course, it's moving to that, moving back to the Westerns. I think that the more quality television shows we have, uh, the better it'll get for us. The more movers we have, the better it'll get for us. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really very true that we are getting that youth audience in, as you suggested. Well, you mentioned the Mountain Man uh, genre in Westerns, uh, the most popular. But do you see any breaking, uh, new new breaking ideas coming through on the Western, uh, taking the Western and twisting it around to make it a little bit different? Do you see any of that coming? I think that uh, there's a there's a couple of things. The very traditional ranching saga is coming back in in a big way, and we can blame a television show for that. Uh, ranching sagas are going to come in in a big way, and I also think that there are um, a series of science fiction westerns that are coming out, uh, more more credible than perhaps have been done before, uh, that will probably be quite interesting for the readership, and are showing some promise. Yes, science fiction westerns. You know, for instance, I was I had a plot sent to me a few days ago for a, an alien invasion in the West. Oh, or, you know, I have an idea, like Nick. A- that's the, probably one of the hottest in the United States right now, and that's the Christian market. Uh, Christian with the push of pure flicks and how growth uh, Christian films are doing in the theaters. If a Christian author wrote a Western, that would really do well with sales, in my opinion. So that's my idea to throw at you, Nick, for a potential. I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, The Christian market, that is, that is a huge base for us. And I agree with you completely there. I, I agree with you completely. I well, mean, then, the sellouts, these movies and stuff, Nick, is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, oh, like absolutely. where they're putting they're putting the 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 chosen on in theaters, and they're selling out a t- a TV show that's free when they go to the theater. So there's really a big movement. So that I, I don't know if you have any Christian authors like that, but that's definitely one that will also equate to moving into movies and television, which it looks like you're trying to do, Nick, is taking their movies and put them into something else, which is fantastic to scale what you're doing there's two sides of this as well there's the side of it you're right which is the christian side which is which is a booming market i agree with you it's a boom market on the other side there's the avant-garde western market as well uh the more artistic side uh we're seeing a lot of authors from places like new york and chicago artistic authors in fact on my recent visit to the united states i was at a writing commune uh where they had uh, 20 authors who were writing together to work on books and these were not guys you would consider to be the average Western author. It used to be that the Western author was an older gentleman or an older lady. Um, these were this was a writing commune. These people were were writing traditional westerns with a twist, poetry and all kinds of stuff. Very Hare Krishna, and uh, it was a very interesting thing to see. They see value in in the avant garde side. They can make poetry or whatever they want to do with the western. And on the other side, you have the heavy Christian side of things as well, of course. Uh, and I, I meet with those those that side regularly too, and that's a very interesting side. So I think there's a there's almost a bloom across the across the board with westerns. I think that it, I think that a lot of it came from the fact that the western for a long time our genre was run by much older men who would not allow it to bloom in different directions. 
Um, and when you start bringing in younger people working in the business, all kinds of avenues open up. Fantastic. Well, the Christian, the Christian uh, values, the Christian theme f- plays well into Westerns. I mean, you know, it, it, Western values, the, the back back when in the West, individuality, uh, the good, the good versus evil. So I think there's a there's a commonality there between the Christian values and the uh, and the Western. Oh, absolutely, there is. There's a heavy Christian uh, Bible theme throughout a lot of westerns, and I think that that is, uh, and also you know the morality of good versus evil um, runs all the way through. I mean, you can trace most most western stories to a Bible story. Absolutely, um, you can you can you can trace uh, you can trace that very clearly. So I agree with you. The Christian side is is a very it's a big market, and I think that that and I also think that uh, it will only keep growing. What's exciting is that Frank creating this podcast is probably the only Western-themed podcast to interview Western authors. And Nick, you're going to be highlighting all of your authors being a guest on this podcast. And I know you're excited about that by you kicking it off and then having your authors on. Oh, absolutely. We'll look forward to doing that. I mean, our authors are always interested in interviews and publicity, and they'll find this very exciting. Uh, once this is available, we'll send the links to them and give them the opportunities, and and uh, they'll, I'm sure they'll jump at it. Our authors are always very excited about the emerging possibilities with with uh, technology. So podcasts and and video interviews and such fascinate them. I would that's the other thing about the people don't understand about the Western business is that our authors are some of the most excited about technological advances. Um, they they don't fear any kind of change. They just want to be part of it. You talk right. about. You talked about the formats now change. You went from the the publishing industry went from hardcover to softcover, and now you're saying the audio books are the ones that are selling better than all of them. Are the other oh, audio books are extremely powerful in, in our market. I mean, we have uh, more audio books in production than anything else right now. The Kindle book comes second, of course. The Kindle has overtaken the paperback. Most of our readers prefer their books over Kindle, uh, prefer their books on Kindle, sorry. And of course, paperbacks and hardbacks trail as they always have. They always have a market segment, but nothing like the listening or the e-reading experience. The audio book is the next big thing. It really is. I when think it comes- so. Nick, how do you choose, uh, how do you choose your, your uh, vocals for the uh, audio book? I have to sit through and listen to a lot of recordings and try and find voices that I think people will remember. And then uh, they go through a committee at the company and the committee uh, makes recommendations. So uh, we'll pick maybe 20 voices and then they'll go through a committee. A lot of DSP is is very successful because of our use of committees. We we recognize that majority of our authors are very talented in their own writing business. So why not put them to work? Are they, um, uh, when you do an audio book, is it just one voice or do or do you try and get different characters uh, to play the to play the roles? Oh, a mixture. We've we've used uh char- we've used casts before. Um, casts have worked very well. We have the moment we have the first Western soap opera in production, um, which is a a series that's been put together by a series of best-selling authors, and that of course will need a cast for the audio production right. because it's because it's a it's a cast it's a soap opera cast. So that's a big thing that we're working on. Um, the normally we found from readers for one novel for a series they prefer to have one voice reading through the whole thing so it doesn't get distracting but for something like the soap opera project you know it has to be multiple voices all right so you know what absolutely it's fantastic uh frank do you have any other questions for nick because we're close to running out of time 
know that, uh, that I hope our listeners understand that uh, Nick's publishing company is really on the cutting edge. And if you are a Western author, you should definitely uh, look into uh, uh, the Dusty Saddle Publishing because they are the future, the cutting edge. Oh, fantastic. Nick, I appreciate it. Best place we can find information on Dusty Saddle. Where can we go? Oh, you can go to dspublishingnetwork.com and learn all about us. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you. All right. Thanks again, Nick. We appreciate it. All right. That was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Western's Author Spotlight.